Our recent live event looked at Jesus' teaching on lust in the Sermon on the Mount. We were challenged in that event to consider once more the lives of holiness befitting to Christian disciples. This included abstinence from sexual activity outside of marriage, but it also looked at the problems of pornography and living lives in the midst of a sexualized culture. Today on the podcast, we're following up on that live event for an extended question and answer session with our guest presenters. We'll be working through many of the outstanding questions from our live audience in hopes of getting even more clarity about what it means to live faithfully under the Lordship of Jesus. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Center for Christian Living podcast. My name is Chase Kuhn. I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia at Moore Theological College. And today I have the privilege of welcoming back some guests, Marshall Ballantyne Jones and Danny Trewick. Thank you both for coming back today. Great to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Very glad to have you back. You're here because we recently did an event on lust and we had such great content at that event and so many questions that came out of that event that we thought we needed to follow up in an episode. And you've graciously traveled back here to meet with me to address some of these questions. So thank you very much. We'll just start really with the heart of the matter, I think, that's going to frame up a lot of it. We want to talk further about defining lust, what actually constitutes lust in our lives. And so, Marshall, we'll put that to you because you presented this to us, but is all thoughts about sex or sexual thoughts the same thing as lust? And how do we distinguish maybe lust from attraction? Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to talk about a few definitions here to be able to box sexual lust in a clear way for people. Not all sexual thoughts are lust, and not all lust thoughts are sexual. (laughs) So, desire can be spontaneous and reactionary, and when that happens, you're really a passive agent in that at least in the short term, though there may be reasons why you have that inclination to desire certain things. You might have triggers or as neurologists call neural cues that flare up because you've fed your brain and your soul a diet of triggers that you happen to have an appetite for. But in terms of sexual lust, I see it really as when we're talking about desires that generate the sexual engine room of our body when we start getting sexually aroused, when we start putting ourselves into an intentional place where we are moving towards arousal, where we're dwelling on the concept that we were triggered at and not just loitering there but becoming focused on it for the ends of the enjoyment that it gives. And so I think when people say, well, was my sexual thought right or wrong? The question that we used to say in youth group is what did you do with that sexual thought? Did you hold on to it and did you let it grow? And if it grew into turning you on, yeah, that's wrong. That's the sort of lust of a woman type lust that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, I believe. Mm. Mm. That's very helpful. Just fleshing this out a little bit more, the kinds of triggers you're talking about, you may see an attractive woman, for example, but the kind of images you've allowed to come into your mind keep you on the lookout then for other kinds of features or attentive to certain kinds of features? Or if you're a woman, the kinds of magazines or other things that you may be dwelling on may actually then turn your attention towards other places. 
Well, yeah, I'd probably just let's jump to the porn example as a mm. great way of explaining this. People who regularly, habitually use pornography to stimulate their sexual desires over time have physical brain changes which can be observed under MRI conditions which show that they have a faster and more aggressive re-triggering of sexual desires when similar experiences are brought before the awareness of the person. Now, the fact that we have a world that is saturated with sexual media at every level, whether it be advertising or our TV shows or what just comes up on our feeds when we're watching YouTube or TikTok or just advertising on the sides of websites we're at or let alone obviously more gratuitous triggers like nudity or porn or so forth. Well, we get very quickly neural cues that flare up and generate the sexual engine progress. Mm. <laughs> so we get turned on quicker. We've fed that situation because of our past behavior. Mm. Yeah, That's very helpful. Mm. So as we're thinking about this then maybe in another direction, is it okay to have any lustful thoughts towards anyone? So if you're in a marriage relationship, it seems as though you would have this kind of sexual attraction, sexual desire. Is it okay to be desiring your spouse this way? I would say absolutely. I mean, I read Song of Solomon's and I'm at the very least reading a narrative of two people who are full of desire and it's celebrated. I think the package of the sexual gift that God's given men and women is at the very basis of it, the concept of desire. Desire is good. You want to desire your spouse. And what does the proverb say? Remember your... Wife, wife of, of, youth. of your youth. Yeah. And so this is all about sexual desire. That's a good thing. Yeah. I think, in fact, for people who have been married a long time and things go stale and their sexual desire wanes and they're tempted on other areas or indifferent, there's a lot of great techniques from counselors and so forth to really get you back into that pocket of desire and yeah. fun and so forth. But this is part of the package of gifting that God's given us. We want to celebrate that. We want to acknowledge that it's in the domain of marriage mm -hmm. and where it is there, we want to encourage it. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to echo what Marshall said there, that part of God's wisdom in creating human beings in the way he created them is as sexual creatures. He's made us to be creatures who have a sexuality, who experience sexual desire, who can actually look at the world around us, but particularly other people and recognize beauty or attraction in all sorts of varied forms. And those things are good. They're part of the good aspect of what it means for us to have been created by God in the way that he did create us. The problem is when our sinfulness turns those things in on themselves, away from God, away from loving other people and in on ourselves. And so I think certainly sexual desire in marriage for your spouse is actually part of God's good gifting for that relationship, though I do suspect that it can be easily turned in on itself in ways that actually objectify your spouse rather than loving your spouse. It makes your sexual desire about your gratification rather than service of them. Yeah. So it's a really complicated question, isn't it, that we yeah. <laughs> so much to unpack there. I think we have to be careful not to say sexual desire always bad. Yes. Actually, no, there's lots of good reasons that God has made us the way he has. We just have to be aware of the way that our sinfulness turns those good things in on themselves yeah. so that they become evil things. So helpful because I think we often think Christianity means no sex or sexual desire really takes a back seat. But actually what Christianity confesses is that God has made us a certain way, as you mm. just said, Danny. 
and it is meant to be expressed in right ways in each context. And one of the things we do in faith is entrust ourselves to God's wisdom and plan for us. And so the right expression for us in each stage of life is different, but it's entrusting ourselves in faith to these things. Mm. And I love what both of you have just said. Danny, you said it's not about objectification in our marriage. And Marshall, you said actually sometimes it's about recovering fun. And I don't even think you mean that necessarily in just the sexual sense, but just actually enjoying each other's company, having fun together recaptures some of that desire. And a lot of the couples that see sex go off the boil in their marriage, for example, have just lost sight of just simple enjoyment of one another, actually just enjoying a conversation or going out on a lovely walk or something really beautiful, just simple that actually kindles that kind of desire in other ways. I also think without having to get into this question, you've given us a helpful guide here about other stages of life, like a fiance, whether or not a fiance should be having sexual desire for their soon-to-be spouse. You said, Marshall, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. There is this anticipation in that narrative of moving towards the wedding day, but it's always channeled towards that end, isn't it? It's not channeled towards the momentary gratification. It's the anticipation, if you will, that makes the marriage celebration so much more beautiful. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? Firstly, people who are dating and particularly who have moved to that moment of commitment that says, I want to marry this person, it should not be surprising to them that they find that there is very rapid kindling of sexual desire for the other person. I mean, this is part of how Mm -hmm. you've been designed and would be a concern if it wasn't there, given Mm -hmm. the choice that you are making to want to marry the person. So the anticipation's there. The acting on the anticipation, well, we've got to go back to the first question What are you doing with it? If you're dwelling on it and jumping the gun in stimulating your sexual desires to the point, and I'll just say to want to or to actually masturbate and have a fulfillment experience using that fiancé as the object of your fantasies, I think that that's not right. I think that's a misuse of God's gift of marriage. The sexual reward or sexual gift is for once you have committed and pledged yourself to each other. It confirms the bond. It doesn't precede the bond. I think I liken it to, let's say, the crown jewels, and I mean the literal crown jewels in, <laughs> in the UK, right? The crown jewels for Queen Elizabeth happened to be in the Tower of London in a series of vaults. Now, the Queen doesn't use them except for special occasions. They are hers by right, but she doesn't use them whenever she wants to. She doesn't go down and put on a tiara or pick up a rod with a big ruby on it or whatever and just go for a walk with the corgis. No, she knows that those very special things have a special place and they have to restrain their access mm-hmm. to them until the point where it's appropriate. And I think if we got a grip of the vision that God has for the power of sexuality as a gift to humanity and realize that it is a very treasured thing, we would treat it with the degree that it deserves and that is put it in a vault when it's not being used for the right thing because it's that precious. And we have cheapened sex in our society to the point that we believe we're entitled to sexual fulfillment whenever we want it. That's the narrative that exists in all of Western society now. And yet God says, no, you are not entitled to it, and it is not that cheap. It is hugely expensive, and it has such a powerful effect on a marriage which is other person-centered That's a powerful effect on contributing to that oneness that is lifelong, that to treat it cheaply is to really treat God's gift of marriage cheaply. And for those who listen to the talk, that then has a problem with treating the metaphor marriages cheaply, and that is namely 
Christ in his church, Ephesians 5. So it's almost blasphemous at that point. And so if you're engaged, you need to show discipline and structure in your conduct and you need to be forward-looking and remember the ceremony's coming and then you can open the vault and get those jewels and all is good. Yeah, and I was just going to follow on from that, that, listening to Marshall then. The world that we live in says that sex is all about me. My sex drive, my sex desires, my sexual longings are about me. God's word actually says, no, they're not. They're about you in relationship to other people. And so if you, for example, are engaged to someone, you are experiencing that sexual desire, that sexual longing, perhaps a good diagnostic question is, what am I doing with this? Is how I'm acting upon this actually about me or is it about loving my fiancé? That might be a a helpful diagnostic question to stop in the moment and recognise the motivations that you've got going on for you there and might actually help you to redirect those longings towards your love for that other person who is not yet your husband or not yet your wife but who you've committed to making your spouse in the future. So, yeah, that might be a good question to keep in mind. That's very helpful. Just maybe launching off that then for a moment, Danny, because you raised this so helpfully. So much now in the narrative of our culture is about our identity being expressed in our sexuality. And so for both of you, I'll ask the question, where do we start in a conversation with someone who is convinced that sexual expression is empowering them or even maybe about their own self-realization? And Anything that would go against that would be repressive. Mm. That's a big question and there's probably a lot of places to start engaging with that. But I feel quite convinced that one of the most helpful places to start can be actually just sitting down and teasing out what they are saying there. Asking questions to not just help you understand more where they're coming from, but to help them understand more about what their convictions are at that point. Because as I just said, the world around us says very self-evidently sex is about me and my gratification and my desires being fulfilled and who I am, what my identity is. That's just the air that we breathe. And I think a helpful place to start can be, hang on, let's actually recognize that. Let's recognize, look at and understand the air around us. And then let's start teasing that out and working out what some of the implications of that are. If it is true that my ability, my freedom to express myself sexually in whatever way I so choose is actually fundamental to what it means for me to express who I am, what are the implications of that? If I've got unfettered freedom to be who I want to be according to my own desires, what consequences might that have for other people in my life? And just starting to pull those threads, I think, can be a helpful way to start pulling that down off the pedestal Mm. and helping people to realize this isn't all it's cracked up to be. There are problems here that have to be dealt with before we then get to what are some alternative ways that we might think about this. So that's one place to perhaps start. Very wise and very helpful. And it asks the overarching question as well of what's guiding our morality. So if it is simply whatever I feel is necessary for me to be genuine. I have limitless Mm. opportunities to do whatever I want and no one can tell me no. Mm. So I can define whatever I want to be moral and the only thing that justifies it is if it's authentic. Mm. And that's a very, very dangerous thing. And if we actually press that to its end, it can get us into a lot of messes. Well, it's very easy to press it to the end when you just look at the statistics of the consequences of selfish sexuality on relationships Mm. and on society. 
there's been so much research done on relationships and the impact of the use of pornography, the engagement in sexual relationships with people that aren't part of that relationship, the influence of past sexual behaviour on those current relationships, and the statistics are consistent that it wreaks havoc on Mm. people's confidence, on their trust, on their intimacy, on sexual fulfilment. It's no accident that study after study shows that the most happy sexual lives are those who are in monogamous, lifelong, committed sexual relationships in marriage. And so at that level, we could see that once you tease out the implications of Mm. this self-entitled, endless sexual expression, it just falls apart. But it's also falling apart at a legal level in society. We find so many people just getting caught up in the law because they realised that they were hurting other people, they were breaking laws, they were being abusive, they were creating damage in other people. And for those people who don't have any shackles on their sexual desires, invariably very vulnerable people get exploited, children. And we see that. I mean, look at the age we're living in, the Me Too age, the Church Too age, the right outcry of how abuse has been covered up, how power has been corrupted in these. And as a society, we are completely recognising that. But at the same time, we're still trying to say, but it's okay to do exactly what you feel like doing because that's the essence of your identity. These two things, they are completely contradictory to each other, Mm. but somehow as a society, we're still trying to pretend that you can believe both of these things Mm. at the same time. Well, the Chanel Contos petition that blew up in February 2021 is a great example of what's happened at a very base level of society where you've got tens of thousands of young females reporting just terrible negative sexual experiences with teenage boys and just the hurt and the pain and the abuse that that happened and the sense of entitlement Mm. and ignorance from these males. It's just an example of how widespread and destructive this is and just how illogical it is that you can have a fulfillment of your sexual desires whenever you want it because that's really who you are and to quell that is somehow wrong. So it just falls apart. And as Danny said, look, that's just one side of the Mm. equation. This is a small area of deconstructing that. We could keep going and we could Mm. spend many, many, many hours doing it because Mm. I think I've read close to three, 400 peer-reviewed research papers on the negative effects of sexualized behavior, pornography and so forth on relationships and people. So it's out there. Mm. But then there's another issue, as Danny said, and that is the issue of alternative worldviews. Mm. Mm-hmm. As Christians, there is a very clear alternative worldview. That's the worldview of Jesus and the scriptures. Mm. And I think one of the problems with a young Christian who might be feeling a great tension, if not feel offended that they're being challenged on their sexual behavior and sexual autonomy, is I just question whether or not they've actually got familiar with what Jesus has to say on this. Because the New Testament alone has a lot to say on sexuality and Jesus has a lot to say on sexuality and on how to do good relationships. And people, I think, should really put a pause on their sense of entitlement and come spend some substantial time listening to the words of Jesus and just see if they match. Mm. And if they don't, I think you then need to do some serious questions about which worldview you think's the one you need to follow. Yeah. And following on from that, do I believe Jesus yeah. when he says... I have come that you might have life and have life to the full. Mm -hmm. We're talking here about wanting to be our full authentic self and how the world says that we do that. Jesus says the way to actually have full, authentic, holy, fruitful, flourishing life is in him. Yeah. 
And so really the challenge for us as Christians is do we believe Jesus when he says that or are we going, yeah, 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 okay, but this thing over here, this is actually going to offer me what you can't. Mm -hmm. And that's an enormous challenge, not just in areas of sexuality but certainly including areas of sexuality that we have to grapple with. It comes back to what we said a moment ago. This is about walking by faith. Do we actually take God at his word? Do we actually trust the words of Jesus? Do we really believe that he has the words of life? Mm. And following him, we know paths of righteousness. Mm. take a break from our program, I'd like to tell you about some resources for your Christian life. The Center for Christian Living is continuing our series of live events on Jesus's teaching in Matthew 5. Our next live event on the theme of deception will be held on the 24th of August. I'm very excited that Dr. Tony Payne will be returning to help us think about the significance of our words as Christian men and women. Please plan to join us. Registrations are open online at ccl.more.edu.au. Also, Danny Chweek, one of my guests today on the program, serves as the chair of the Single-Minded Conference. Later this year, the conference will be held in Sydney on July 30th and Brisbane on August 6th. The theme this year is Being a Body, and the keynote speaker is Sam Albury. I highly recommend that you check out this conference and plan to get along to it. And of course, if you can't make it in person, there are also live stream options available. You can find out more information at singleminded.community. That's singleminded.community. Now let's get back to our program. Moving on from this for a moment, I mean, we've talked about this really despairing pit of porn and how nasty pornography can be. And you raised this a bit in your talk, Marshall. But some people have asked the question about pornography and its dangers, and they want to know, is porn grounds for divorce? So when Jesus equates lustful thoughts with adulterous behavior, and he draws that line of equation in the punishment, as you helpfully showed in your talk, how do you counsel a spouse, perhaps, who's in a relationship with someone, it could be male or female, obviously, a husband or a wife that's finding this in they're addicted to pornography. Is this grounds for divorce? Hmm. There's no doubt that any spouse who's been surprised to find that their husband or their wife has been secretly using porn and being sexually gratifying themselves to it be very deeply hurt and betrayed. And I see so many people in this situation across my ministry that are dealing with this, the rubble of a destroyed relationship, what some would say is such a benign discovery. It's not when you put all your trust and hope and promises into someone and find Mm -hmm. out that they weren't returning it. And I think this is why Jesus was very quick to group lustful thoughts of another person with adultery. It's certainly as serious as an act of adultery. It is serious in the sense that the marriage vows are broken. The person has betrayed their promises. Then we looked at what Jesus says on divorce, and he says that marital unfaithfulness is a grounds for divorce. So if we want to pause there and think just mathematically or legalistically, you could probably say, yeah, there is grounds for divorce there. But I think we want to pause there first and step back and look at what Jesus really is doing in his ministry, which is not to just clarify legalism. Mm. He is revolutionizing legalism. 
he has brought forgiveness because we are all failures of God's laws. And so in him bringing forgiveness through his death and resurrection, he's bringing transformation that makes us not just a forgiven people but a forgiving people. And it's embedded in the Lord's Mm -hmm. Prayer itself. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sins against us. Now, I would never want to diminish the depth of pain and hurt that an individual couple has experienced and a spouse has felt because of the other person's porn use. I think each case needs to be looked at in its own situation. But I would not want to jump to divorce as like the first, aha, I can leave you now, solution. Mm. When Jesus taught about divorce, where he mentioned that adultery was a grounds for it, he's really making the argument to the Pharisees at the time, that divorce is a last resort. God is not happy with divorce. This is not the destination we want to pursue. We want to exhaust all other options. So forgiveness really is the question, can I forgive the person? And this is not an easy question for someone feeling very Mm. deep pain. Forgiveness requires repentance. And so if the spouse is not prepared to repent, their behavior is not changing, they keep repeating it, well, that's obviously a very big problem. And it's going to be an inhibitor for not only forgiveness, but reconciliation. The person who's been wounded in the relationship will have to bear a cost. And depending on the degree of that cost, because I've got to say, not all porn use is the same. Like some people may have been triggered and stumbled and it was very occasional. I would say that's different to someone who is a six day a week user of pretty debauched categories of porn where they're very depraved in their fetishes and their interests. And I think we're talking about someone who's gone way down a pathway, which is so far it seems a long distance to come back and a lot of hard work. So I think just on the divorce question, that's the last thing we need to be asking in mm. that situation. And people who are pastoring hurt couples and damaged couples in this need to be working really hard to bring restoration But in the long run, if a spouse is persistently enduring this betrayal, they should not be obliged to stay married to the Mm. person, I think, and at least they're justified to separate. How do you counsel someone, maybe Danny, you can answer this, how do you counsel someone who's coming out of addiction, that is, that their spouse has been addicted, they have repented, they're working towards reconciliation, but the longstanding hurt and probably distrust remains. Mm. How do you counsel somebody through that? Oh, gosh, with a lot of love and patience and care and reflection on the reality of who we all are as sinful people. I don't have a silver bullet answer to that, except I think it, well, I guess it depends on what your context is. What does it mean for you to be a counsellor in that person's life? Now, I take it actually encouraging them go to see someone who is professionally able to help them in this way is a very good thing to do, and I'd certainly encourage people to pursue that. But if it was a friend of mine, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, if it was a friend of mine who came and said, I need you to help me through this, that's done in relationship with them, alongside them, knowing them as I do. I think it is, as Marshall was just saying, a reminder of the complex grace of God that calls us to respond to pain and betrayal with a sense of hope and optimism of the power of the Spirit to bring about repentance and forgiveness and change. But that does need, as Marshall has just said, to be balanced with the reality that ongoing sin and endemic sin in our lives is something that we can't just pretend will get better Mm. without there being 
a genuine commitment to that repentance and forgiveness and change. Mm. And so I don't think there is a one plus one equals answer to this. I think it very much has to be done in relationship, in context of circumstances, with you and your role as a counsellor, a friend there, being one person amongst a number who are actually supporting not just this individual but this married couple yeah, to hold on to this incredible gift of the covenant of marriage insofar as they are able to do that. And these yeah. are promises that we make often in our church contexts to be supporting. Yeah. And some reason why we go to weddings is because we are committing to walk with a couple through life. I find that pornography in the church can be quite a hidden, mm-hmm. undisclosed, sinful area, both for men and women. I think it's often thought that men talk about this more, and that may be perhaps true to some degree. Marsha, you probably have statistics about this, but how do we as a community begin to work through challenges of lust by talking about it, confessing sin perhaps? Who do we do that with? And if we'll move through these questions in succession, but how do we actually help somebody that may be trapped in something like addiction? So maybe we'll start at the last question first. Marshall, people that are really in the deep end, pornography addiction, you've been developing a program for porn addicts or people to recover from these things. How do you help somebody that is really finding themselves stuck? Where do you tell them to go? What do you tell them to do? I think it's very complex. And to take Danny's phrase before, there's no silver bullet to overcoming addiction, but it's very important that people understand that porn addiction is a very real and powerful category of behavioral addiction. And it requires a lot of structure and a lot of work, a lot of determination and a long time to really get to a state where you're able to manage yourself. Whether or not addiction can be cured, I doubt, but these things can definitely be managed. So basically, a person who's got an addictive behavior to porn or some other sexual behavior, they need at the very interim to start to get some therapy so that they can really disclose, be honest, and start to understand themselves. And you'll find more often than not, there's more than just a habit. There's a backstory to the person. So that needs work. People need to work together with porn. And maybe this touches on that distinction between males and females in church communities or just in public. There's much more porn prevalence use in males and females. And so in a church, males were probably more inclined to talk about it because there's more of them and there's more of them in any group. For females, I can only really report what I hear from the female specialists who work in this field. What they tell me is that because female porn users are one in five, they're very much a minority in any small group. There's not much understanding or empathy from their Mm -hmm. friends and so it can feel very isolating and it's also i'm told it has a different type of embarrassment that is more deeply psychological and bound in their identity than Mm -hmm. the guys and so i just think it is harder in a church community to have pathways for help for females who are struggling with this and as i say it's one in five that is still a substantial number in a church so Mm -hmm. churches need structures in their organization leadership structures program structures they need to have culture that is prepared to advance easy access and gracious access to support and for guys as well that's really important because there are a few forces that are very instrumental in helping people overcome addiction one is the power of community and the power of dialogue with peer groups because when you're working together with other people of like mind, you find that you can get to a much quicker state of countercultural determination and opinion. It's amazing how powerful the isolation is on keeping you embedded in that addiction. Mm-hmm. You also need to keep feeding your mind with truth. 
not just about God and about his world order, but also about the wrongs and the dangers and the negative effects of what you're doing. You've got to see where those consequences are. It's all documented. It's in the secular literature. It's not hard to find. You've got to just open your eyes and see that you've got to actually see what harm you're doing to other people. And you need, of course, to start growing a heart of love and so forth. So that helps as well. Just on that quickly, I mean, somebody comes to you in church and they say, I need help with this and they need to begin, say, counseling or something. What's the first port of call for them? Where do you steer them to go get help? Is there a hotline? Is there a website? People sometimes feel stuck. And I realize people are going to be listening to this all over the world. So There are a number of ministries, parachurch ministries that have arisen that try to fill this gap because there's been a general realization that churches are really lousy at dealing with this. Mm. And in my studies of quite a few churches here in Sydney, it's virtually universal that they don't have what I call easy pathways mm-hmm. to access help. And so right now, if someone came to me and said, I have a problem, I would be forwarding them onto this website and that website and to get resources. I'd be encouraging them to tell their Bible study group, a trusted Christian mentor, one of their church leaders, and I'd be encouraging them to go to a therapist as well. That's what I'd be saying now because I know that their church doesn't have the suite of structures that they need to be able yeah. to give an umbrella of solutions. Once a person starts dealing with the problem behaviors of lust, of lust with porn or of other areas of sexual desire that are ungodly and habitual particularly, when they're struggling with these things, stopping the behavior in the interim is actually easier than people realize. You can very quickly sever the behavior, particularly when you're focused and determined. Where you're vulnerable is when you've got pressure in your life and when you've got triggers and when you're bored and when there's no guardedness. And so actually part of the challenge for anyone who's dealing with addiction is to actually understand that you need to erect around yourself structures and safeguards which will be able to protect you when those times of vulnerability come. Because without that, you're going to fall and you're going to fall hard. And that's really what people keep experiencing with most behavioral addictions. So this is why people need to work with others in their church or leaders or so forth to get accountability. Mm -hmm. I'm a fan of software, I think reducing all those sorts of accesses to quick triggers are important. So Covenant Eyes or Family Zone or Canopy or there are quite a few filtering software options out there and they're good. There are some that go further and accountability softwares that both filter and then link you up with other people. They're good and I think you need to include them in the diet moving forward. But never trust yourself and therefore make sure that you have ultimately a whole suite of solutions around you that protect you from those vulnerable times. Thank you very much for that, Marshall. Denny, just thinking about the woman's perspective for a moment, women you've talked to, how have you found it helpful to get women engaging in this space? Mm. What would you counsel women that are looking to get help with sexual addiction or even just lust generally, even if it's not a major addiction, but there's lust featuring in their life. Mm. How do you encourage women to begin talking about this? Mm. Listening to Marshall just a moment ago when he said one in five, I thought, okay, yes, so that is significantly less than men, but one in five is still, as Marshall said, a significant, you know, one in five women in any of our churches on average, this will be a reality for them. And I think it is really important that when we're talking about this topic, whether it's lust, whether it's specifically porn, that we are very careful to not make it a gendered thing. I hear, certainly not in our context here, but I read lots of articles that talk about porn 
as being something men have to deal with. And that automatically will make women who are struggling with it themselves feel like they can't talk about it. They're a freak. And we need to be able to go, no, 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 this is actually something that women, some women, one in five women are actually grappling with possibly more silently than some of their male friends and family members. Just as a side point, I think this is why it's really important for our churches to have develop and invest in women in appropriate leadership positions Mm. in our churches, whether that is on ministry staff teams or whether it's actually making sure that there are women who are seen to be mentors available Mm. in our churches for other women to actually come to in trust relationship. So, you know, that's just a bit of a side point. But I think for all of us, whether we're men or women, this is about our relationship with Jesus. And it's about our relationship with each other. We just have to keep remembering this is about how I am living in light of the salvation that God has given me. It's about how I live in optimistic hope of the Spirit's work in sanctifying me to be more in my life. Jesus, I'm not a hopeless cause. I'm a sinner, but I'm also a forgiven sinner, and I'm a sinner who is being sanctified day by day. And if we can put these things in that context, I think that gives us a theological framework to actually go, all right. Now I've got a framework around me that goes, this means that I'm compelled to action Mm. in whatever way that might then be. I love this at the base of our communities, what you've just said, Danny, is a gospel motivation and a gospel liberation. Mm. So I'm motivated to live unto Christ, living in the newness of life that Christ has given to me. That's wonderful. That wants me to be holy. But I'm also freed to confess sin because all of my life is only ever by grace. Yeah. So when we're in community- the fears of opening up about problems are really gospel insecurities that Mm. I'm not entrusting myself to gospel grace that I've received. I'm now afraid of consequences in my life or how I'll be perceived or whatever Mm. thoughts we'll have about being established. But our establishment is only ever by the grace of God. That is our whole place. That's right. And so we have freedom there. I'm so grateful for what you both have shared with us today. And I'm very thankful for what you shared with us at the event And I'm grateful for the ministries that you have beyond just what we've been doing here on the podcast and our event for CCL. So thank you both. And we'll look forward to having you both in the future. Thanks very much. Thanks. To benefit from more resources from the Center for Christian Living, please visit ccl.more.edu.au, where you'll find a host of resources, including past podcast episodes, videos from our live events, and articles published through the center. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast and for you to leave us a review so more people can discover our resources. On our website, we also have an opportunity for you to make a tax-deductible donation to support the ongoing work of the center. We always benefit from receiving questions and feedback from our listeners. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at ccl at more.edu.au. As always, I would like to thank Moore College for its support of the Center for Christian Living and to thank my assistant, Karen Bealharts, for her work in editing and transcribing the episodes. The music for our podcast was generously provided by James West. James West.